want to get service, selection, and price so low. The record archive is the place to go.
That was 2 Plus 1 by BML, coming off of their 2014 release. That their dog's a chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Me too. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with award-winning documentary filmmaker Jesse Vile. His work has been featured on ESPN, Investigation Discovery, Netflix, and National Geography. We were first introduced to him as the filmmaker behind Jason Becker's documentary, Not Dead Yet, which took us on a journey of perseverance, inspiration, admiration, and brought us a deep understanding of the power of love and support. So listen in as we talk to Jesse about Jason's film, his latest Netflix series, The Ripper, some of his other projects, Les Claypool's in there, Werner Herzog makes an appearance, Clockwork Orange is talked about briefly. West Memphis 3. All kinds of good stuff. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. So I think we wanted to start with our introduction to you, to your work, was the Jason Becker documentary, Not Dead Yet. Yeah. Um, can we kind of start with that? Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Um, so that was, that was your first feature full-length documentary yeah yeah so that was the yeah that was the first feature doc i i ever did and it was um god i think that was released something like nine years nine years ago uh but yeah it, does, it definitely doesn't seem like nine years it's pretty crazy when i think about it so that that being your first your first really release um what was it, it? And this is according to the internet, so it could be <laughs> not entirely right. accurate, but I think it is. Um, it won nine awards. Yeah, I mean, it, it was on the festival circuit for quite a while, about a year, uh, which is, you know, pretty typical for, um, well, it's not typical, actually. I mean, it, it just depends on how many festivals you get into, but it just sort of did the circuit for a while. Uh, yeah, and just picked up various awards. I mean, it, didn't win every you know every one of them but um uh yeah it was it was pretty amazing how uh how well received it was and it was just great to sort of um you know uh, introduce jason to a whole a whole new audience so that was really really cool and it sort of invigorated him inspired him a bit more um to to you know to write more to reach out to new fans and and so that was really great to see how it sort of um you know, lifted his spirits a bit as well. Yeah, yeah. And everyone else's. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks. It was, um, we've seen a lot of documentaries, a lot of music documentaries, and that one was really kind of life-changing for us. It was, it was, it hit kind of all, like, all the key factors about kind of his life, but it was also super inspirational and really touching and sad, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, thanks very much. It's um, it's a story I've wanted to tell since I was a teenager, uh, and I sort of finally got around to doing it. And, and, and it was gonna, you know, originally when I was in film school way back in the day, it was like, oh, I'm gonna make a, you know, I'll make it into a, you know, a, you know, a feature scripted film. Uh, but then once I realized how expensive they were, mm. especially when you're talking about something w- which would have been a period piece in a way, because you're talking about the '80s and the yeah. early '90s predominantly, and 
uh, and then it sort of developed into well, maybe a short film that could then develop into a feature and then a short talk. And then I just said, you know what, like this is the story's it's too big to sort of encapsulate in a, in, in, you know, in a, in a short work. So it just expanded into a feature doc pretty, I mean, pretty quickly. As soon as Jason sort of gave me the green light to, to tell a story, it was, I knew what I wanted to do. It. Yeah. It just sort of fell into place after that. Was there, I know you said that you were kind of, um, when you first met him, you were kind of starstruck a little bit. Yeah. I, ha I have to say, yeah. um, that that was weird um seeing him because i mean i had seen before that i'd seen famous people i'd seen actors and stuff mainly uh i'd, I'd even seen like big musicians um just wherever you just at award shows i went to or whatever i, was, I saw jimmy page he was one of my idols and mm -hmm. Lemmy and like all these amazing Pete John Fogarty and Irma Thomas, like all these amazing musicians and and I was absolutely blown away when I see those guys, Nick Cave, and I just you know, your hearts are sort of drops and you see them, you're like, Oh my god, they're actually real. Mm -hmm. And when you see actors, even though like film is my life really I I'm I'm not that bothered really, but when you see musicians, you're just like, Oh my god. And when I saw him, it was weird because we had to go around. It was dark. We got stuck in the, the worst traffic. We got stuck on, I think it was the Richmond Bridge. I don't know what, what bridge it was. But we flew into San Francisco. And it was just the worst traffic for like two hours. And then we finally got there. It was really dark. I was a little bummed out because, um, you know, I knew he had this, you know, routine. And he was going to be going to sleep pretty soon. I wanted to spend as much time with him as possible. So anyway, we get there. We rock up and we have to go around back. And when around back, I just... You could see him through. I remember, like through the the you know the um, sliding window, the sliding door window, uh -huh. and I just see him in his chair, and it just I just stopped. It, it was really that that to me was an amazing moment because I was like I had spoken to him on the phone and stuff, but I was like, oh my god, like he's real because I think there's there's a lot of mythology about Jason, you know, and. and there's a lot of, you know, he's a he's a living, breathing legend, and um, I don't know. That to me was, that to me was probably the most starstruck I've ever been in in, in my life, really. Wow, it's amazing. That's cool. Yeah. So I have a I have a two part question for you. We uh, sure we read in an interview that you actually reached out to Jason when you were 19, still in film school, and you kind of put the hold on it because you felt like you didn't have the experience to capsulate his entire story. So what made you contact him 10 years later? And how often did you think of your vision of a Jason Becker during those 10 years? Well, that's a great question. And I, I totally, totally forgot that I had remembered that I said that. Um, yeah, I, I tracked him down, I think, uh, back in Back in film school, I tracked him down via this guy that knew him, who oddly had the same last name, but they weren't related. Uh, and then got in touch with him, wrote him an email, um, and I just—I think I just sort of froze uh, when I realized, oh my god, like he—he he is interested in speaking to me about this, and I think I realized, what the hell am I doing? I have no clue. I'm going to screw up his story. Like, what am I doing? Because the thing, and then when—and I'll jump back when I when I ended up making it. Uh, ten years later, there was—I just felt this immense amount of pressure to tell his story right. I knew a lot of a lot of his fans. He's very beloved, and I just was like, "Oh my God!" Um, 
I can't screw this up. Uh, and that's sort of how I felt when I was 19. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and this isn't, you know, you always make mistakes. And when you first start doing something, particularly when you're young, and I'm like, this is not the one I want to make mistakes with. Um, so I went off and made some other short films and stuff. And, and, uh, and it wasn't until really later in life um, where I felt, I had matured, uh, I, you know, I had learned a lot and I knew that, um, that I could do it. You know, I, I, I knew that I could do it now. And, and I think the reason I reached out to him again, is I was I just regret I was like, you know, I, I, this is the one story in my life I really need to tell. I want to tell. And if I don't do it, it'll be one of the biggest regrets of my life. And so I reached out to him. Luckily no one had done it, but the thing is he gets asked all the time. Oh, I can imagine. Not anymore. Not anymore, because obviously one's been done now. Um, but he would get asked all the time, and, and people would come out, and they'd film him for a bit. It was a lot of work for him, and then it would just sort of fizzle out, and they would never follow through, because I think a lot of people don't realize making a film is a lot of work. It really, really is a ton of work, and um, it takes up a ton of your time, a lot of your resources. So he was reluctant at first when I when I reached out to him again. Luckily, he didn't remember that I was one of the people who get in touch with him all the time and then blow him off. Uh, so that was that that was great. But um, it's just it's just a, a massive commitment for him. Uh, and yeah, and I was just really glad. I had to convince him a little bit. Uh, you know, the first time I did, and the second time I had to convince him a bit because again, he gets contacted all the time for this and and has had people film with him. And it just didn't turn to anything, and he was, you know, disappointed. So I had to convince him, and, and eventually, you know, um, I did, and that was it. That's awesome. So you mentioned you spent several months on the phone, corresponding through email um, with him and his family. When did you decide enough is enough? Like, let's put the wheels in motion here and start creating his story. Well, I mean, I think it it was about a week. It took a week of convincing, and I, I initially, um, he said, look, if you're really serious, we can talk more about it, and then um, I was, and then he, but he still wasn't, you know, I just had to convince him, so I went off and I just ripped tons of videos and stuff off of, and interviews that he had done off of, you know, wherever, online, on YouTube mainly, and I cut together uh, sort of like a sizzle trailer a sizzle slash sort of you know fake trailer based on all this found footage that i that i ripped off the internet and sent it to him and he just really really liked it and i think he was also impressed that i even bothered to do something like that and i think once i did that he's like okay cool this kid's serious let's let's do it yeah um and then yeah from there i started a crowdfunding campaign i mean from there it was just like i'm, I'm in this now like i'm not there's no turning back Especially, I remember the way I felt the first time 10 years earlier, I felt really dejected. And um, I was like, I'm definitely going to do this now. And so it was just, there was no turning back. Uh, I mean, I, and I just spent, you know, months on the phone with his friends, his family, just kind of researching with them, asking them loads of questions. So when I rocked up to actually do the interviews, I, I knew what I wanted to ask them. I knew I was prepared, you know, it wasn't. It, 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 it then wasn't like a story slash fact finding exercise when I'm actually with them and you're paying a crew and you, you know, you have limited amount of time, uh, you need to be prepared. And so that's what the sort of months leading into the actual shoot, that's what they were, they were about. 
So the movie, I think, really effectively takes the viewer on a journey through Jason's story. A lot of it, like I said before, emotional and touching. Um, can you, other than when you first met him and you were kind of starstruck, can you, was there a point during the creation of the film that stands out to you as like something ab above, you know, like when you first met him? Yeah, I think it was um, when I was making it. Um, I think it was, there were, there were so many moments, I think, when you're in the edit and everything just comes together uh, and you get goosebumps, um, when, you know, when you cut a sequence and then you add the mu you know, music and everything. And uh, it just fun because when you're, I mean, when you're writing and you're researching and you're filming, you're, you're sort of just assembling all the parts. You're collecting the parts. And it's not until you get into, you, you know, this big, massive, like, box of jigsaw puzzle pieces. And it's not, and you know they're all great, um, but you have to then assemble them. And you have to assemble them in, and there's a million different ways you can do it. But you have to assemble them in the way that you feel is the best, that you feel is, represents the story, you know, and the identity of the, of the story that you want to tell. And that's when, that's my favorite part of the process. And I think there was just so many times in the edit where, um... I was like, oh my God, this is happening, you know, <laughs> like we're, and I think mainly it was, it was drawing out the father and son relationship between, you know, Jason and Gary. I really wanted that to, um, to come through because that's just such an important, um, that's such an important part of Jason's story in his life and Gary's story in his life. And uh, when I saw that, you know, that interaction with them, especially in, you know, in the, in the third part of the film, um that was really magical for me i, I love i love that moment and i think just you know obviously when um when we premiered the film we, we showed it in at cinequest in san jose there were some other festivals that wanted to show it but we um we decided to premiere it in san jose because it was it was just it was it's pretty far from where jason lives but it was just sort of on the edge of where he was able to travel he doesn't really get in the car and travel that much as a big production but um i think just him being there and then when the they had to actually move the uh move the the first screening because it oh it you know it sold out so quickly uh and then they had to move it to a bigger theater so i actually have the original ticket of the very first screen but it's not it's not actually in the theater where it, sh where it showed. It showed in this other theater that was like a you thousand know, seats and it was pretty much full. And, and then just seeing Jason there when the lights came on afterwards and everyone just gave him a standing ovation. I mean, that that was awesome. That was the best. Oh, I have goosebumps. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the best part of the whole process. And then I remember, and then just for me, me personally, I remember... Um, going you know flying over to go to the premiere and i actually crashed it at jason's parents place pat and gary they let me crash there they had a spare room and then um i remember gary driving me to the airport uh after the screening or you know after it when i had to, I had to leave and he said goodbye he's like boy i'm glad we met you and i thought oh man that's like that's the coolest thing anyone's ever said to me uh just that i made you know i I, I didn't screw up their story. You know, I, I made them proud, and they were they were happy with what I did, and, and that was um, that was a really great moment. It sort of was like a, a a nice end to that to that whole you know journey with them. 
That's so incredible. Yeah. Did you have the opportunity to learn vocalize? No, it was, um, I, it was so, I don't know how they do it, to be honest. Um, I, I didn't spend enough time with him. I think we, 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 we had two different trips and we spent total about, I think, five weeks in San Francisco. And um, the first time it was like three weeks. The second time it was a couple weeks. But then we were, then we went to LA. We were filming in LA for a bit. Um, no, I, I think I think that takes a lot of time. It's a very easy system in theory, but I think in practice you need to um, you need to work on it. You need to, you know you you need to um, really know how it works. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, no, I didn't learn how to do it. I mean, just watching them do it, my I got like eye strain. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um, I mean, their eye muscles must be like the strongest in the world. I mean, that's <laughs> how they do it. Pretty incredible. It's absolutely amazing. It's amazing. Just and like you said, I mean, I think you really captured the dynamic of their family. They're they're they have so much love. And dedication and loyalty to each other. And I just, throughout the whole film, it's just so touching to see how they all come together. Yeah, I mean, he has an, an incredible support team or, or, around him. And uh, they're just, I think when you walk into that, what, what I remember and what I can still even feel when I think about it is when you walk into that house, you just feel this incredible energy it's it's and i'm not one of those weird you know crystal wearing people it's just <laughs> you can you can just you know sometimes you feel like bad juju whatever they call it you know um and or you feel good you know good juju and and um walking in there you just there's this like positive energy there really is and especially when you go into gary's art studio he has this really incredible we we we, we filmed some of his interview in his amazing art studio in, in his backyard especially when you're in there you just feel, it's just so cool in there and you just feel this amazing energy and uh yeah it's just they're, they're sort of infectious to be around to be honest um i'm not saying that you know they're saints they're people like anyone else and, and they have their their hardships and stuff but they are a remarkable uh family and and, and you know and the and the people around them uh like marilyn and and, and they're just incredible yeah it was it was sort of sad leaving you, you just felt so good you know being around them so um yeah it, it was just a, an amazing experience to just be with them really oh i can imagine so the first time i saw the movie i remember thinking why isn't david lee roth in this his his kind of perspective is probably pretty important considering the time frame and then afterwards, um, we saw a Q&A with you that uh, someone asked that same question and you said you reached out to his management. They passed it on to him. He didn't respond. Um, our question now is, did he ever respond after the fact, after the film was out? No. No, um, no he didn't. I mean, I think, you know, it was... I don't really know why he, he doesn't, I don't think he takes part in a lot of stuff. Mm. Uh, and I've heard him in interviews and the guy is like, you know, bonkers. Oh yeah. <laughs> he, like he, 
uh, I heard him on Mark Marin last year. He was on Joe Rogan last year, I think. And God, he's all over the place. I mean, he's a really interesting guy. He's certainly yeah. one of a kind. And I think he, him, and his family were really kind to Jason. Uh, particularly, his, you know, his parents were really kind to him, especially when he, when he was going through all that stuff. Mm. I think I, I, I really don't know. Mm. I, I mean, I think for. DLR with the whole Jason thing and and Jason felt a little bit and you know you'll have to ask him if you ever speak to him but felt maybe a little bit um, I don't know left in the dust or something like that but I think you know DLR is, is about you know this specific image and I don't think someone uh you know, when he's getting this new super group, well, not super group, but like, you know, these amazing musicians together for this new album. And mm -hmm. it's, and he's trying to not revamp his career, but he's trying to stay relevant in a time when music was really starting to change. Yeah. And then suddenly his, his all-star guitar player comes down with a devastating illness. It's not good PR for him. And, and this is, uh, this, no, nobody actually told me this, but this is just, you know, as you learn and you grow and, uh, that would be my guess is that he was just trying to st stay separate from any sort of negativity or any sort of mm -hmm. um you know anything like that um and i think i heard an interview one time with with eddie van halen and he was talking about when they were getting back together and this was like a long time ago and uh they were having this i think Van Halen was having his hip replaced or something. Uh -huh. And then he was, they were having this press conference of them getting back together. And then he was, I guess they were asking him questions and he was talking about his hip replacement. And then when the interview was over and they were, you know, back all back together in private, I think, you know, Van Halen was like, and David just kind of trying to illustrate the kind of person that he was. He was like, he was like, this ain't about your fucking hit, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think, I, I don't know. And just from wow. that, I got this idea of like, obviously he just wants to keep it positive and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm saying too much, but that's no. just my, that was my take on it. Yeah. Is he wanted to sort of just move on and, and, and just be shrouded in positivity. And, uh, and that's why he didn't really ever, he, he sort of just left Jason in the, in the dust sort of uh but he, he you know apparently did give him a shout out in this book mm, mm -hmm. but i don't know he just didn't want to he didn't want to take part and i think what's interesting and you're speaking on 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 um eddie van halen is there's this incredible footage uh that i had that jason's uncle um <clears throat> jason's uncle had filmed uh so when jason's he was putting they're putting this together this benefit for him this is like a, a year or two after he started really going downhill and in, in the i think it was like 95 94 95 maybe early 93 i'm not sure but eddie van halen actually came to jason's house mm -hmm. and um sat with him for hours and played guitar and and uh just hung out with him and his family and it was really sweet and it really showed you what a sweet guy um you know eddie was but then we approached, um, when we approached Eddie Van Halen's uh, lawyer or whoever, his manager, whoever, to use the footage, because, you, you know, you want permission, because it was a private thing, it was a family video, it wasn't like a, something for publicity. Yeah. He didn't want it to be in there, mm. uh, because he, he, I think he felt like he didn't want to 
people to think he did it just for publicity or press. He wanted it to be something he did for Jason. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really, really, really touching. I was pissed because I wanted it in my film. Yeah. I thought this is this is great footage and it just shows you in a great light. But it's it's I never really thought it that way. It was interesting he was he didn't want people to think that he just did it so people would think he was a good guy like he, and i thought that was really cool and then once he passed jason's family actually released the footage in tribute and um and yeah it's it was it was like the best it was some of the best archive that we had that we couldn't use and it was, uh. but i understood and you know you you have to you, you have you have to respect their wishes yeah yeah i th- you know i think i maybe saw that on youtube um does does Eddie bring Jason a guitar? Like, give him a guitar? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think he, yeah, if I remember correctly, he, he brings him a guitar, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool footage. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, do you, Ken, have anything else regarding the Jason Becker Not Dead Yet film? I have an aside to it. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, we read that your guitar teacher at one point turned you on to Jason Becker, right? Yeah. Um, what was your introduction? Was it like the cacophony stuff or was it actually Jason's solo stuff or what was it? It was both. It was, so um, I'd been through a few guitar teachers, not millions, but um, about a handful. And, um, you know they were all different, and this one, this one guitar teacher of mine, really cool guy, uh, named Ivor Faust. Everyone called him Jack, and he had this green BC Rich, uh, BC Rich bitch. I think it was green, uh-huh. and he was this really like kind of quirky, cool guy with really long hair, and he was really great on guitar, but he was really into like neo classical sweet picking stuff, and uh-huh. and that was sort of new to me because I was. I, w- I mean, I was super into Shred. I was really into Satriani and Steve Vai. They were like my idols. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, Joe Satriani's Time Machine, I just loved that double album. And um, Steve Vai, Passion of Warfare, and Alien Love Secrets, and all that stuff. I just loved that stuff. And then went to G, you know, G3 concerts and all that. And then when I started taking lessons from this guy, he's like, hey, do you, do you know Ingrid Mounds? I'm like no, no, and he's playing me Bay Mouse. I'm like, wow, that's pretty crazy. And he's like, and you know Marty Friedman and Jason Becker and stuff. And I was like, no, what are they? And then you started telling me the story about Jason Becker, and I was like, that is a freaking amazing story. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would make a great, that would make a great film. Uh, and then I just, I, and I, you know, Invey, I sort of bought an album. I think I bought uh, Rising Force or something, maybe uh-huh. an Alcatraz. I'm not sure. Uh-huh. And it was cool and whatever, but it. And then Marty, I really, really got into Marty solo stuff. Yeah. But Jason stuff really um, blew me away, especially Perpetual Burn, the, f- yeah. the first one. And, and the fact that he was 17 when he made it. That's it was crazy. Just inc- yeah, it was just incredible. And when you think about Cacophony, he was 16 when the first one came out. And um, I was just really drawn to his stuff, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought it was really playful and really cool. And not only could he shred, but he could—he had a lot of feeling. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he could rock out too. And I just thought this guy's wicked. Um, I just loved his stuff. Really did. Uh, I, I bet I definitely prefer, prefer Perpetual Burn 
and perspective to the cacophony. The cacophony stuff's great. Yeah. But um, the song, you know, this, the, the, the kind of the rock songs, the stuff they did just to get on the radio and uh, isn't great in my, in my opinion. Yeah. But the stuff, you know, the instrumental stuff at, with Jason and Marty on those two albums are amazing, like Speed Metal Symphony and mm. that, stuff's, that stuff's wicked. Um, but yeah, it was... Um, it, it was super interesting and I just got really into shred and sweet picking and all that stuff. But, uh, just as a player, I sort of then drifted back into regular rock after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it a little limiting just for me personally as a, you know, as a guitar player. Uh, but to listen to it was, it was, inc- you know, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I, had a guitar teacher too and i remember asking it it sounds like the reverse of maybe what you experienced um this was like a he was really good but he was a jazz guitarist and i remember Uh asking him about ingve at the time and i said i wanted to learn some ingve songs and (laughs) and he goes what do you want to learn what do you want to learn ingve for and I said, isn't he really good? And he goes, what does that make me, a god? And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> Next. That's kind of arrogant. Yeah. That's, well, that's, those are ja- you know, jazz musicians yeah. for you, I suppose. But I mean, it, yeah, it's... Um, there, was that, what was, there was that great line in Whiplash, you know, that film Whiplash, where he's like, um, be careful, you end up a, a rock drummer or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? I was like, what the hell's wrong with rock? I mean, obviously, you know, um, somebody who's like a master jazz musician, I mean, yeah, I mean, musically, they're incredible. Yeah. But for me personally, I, you know, I, give, I guess it's about how how good the music is or, or how pleasing it is to listen to. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I and I can totally see what, what he's saying. And, um, you know, it isn't all about speed and all that. It definitely isn't. Uh, it's 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 fun to look at and to listen to, but after a while, it gets a bit. I, I think you know that that was a real challenge making Jason Becker because I had to sort of forget that I liked his playing. I had to forget that I liked his music, and I, and I had to sort of work with people and editors and stuff that that weren't you know that weren't fans i purposely sought out someone who wasn't a fan not someone who hated him but just someone who wasn't like a fan because i didn't want to make like a fan film and i didn't and i needed someone to sort of put that in check if if i ever lost my way or i was like no no come on play that six minute solo in in its entirety you know (laughs) um they needed to to go dude like 45 minutes of this squealing solo is enough you know what i mean it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it has to be accessible to i, I wanted it accessible not to a mass audience because i wanted to like you know sell it to it it was just you wanted more people outside of his fan base to watch it i didn't want to make a fan film yeah and um and so you know his music isn't as great of a guitar player he is and as great as i think his music is not not everyone loves shred not right. everyone loves that kind of stuff and so we, we had to be really choice with that. You, you had to like at one point show off his skill because you're, you know, you're, you're telling the story about this prodigy and how incredible he was and you're trying to sell that idea 
Um, so you need to kind of show that speed because I think the one people that don't play guitar or music or drums or anything, but if they see someone doing it really fast, they go, "Wow, they're good," you know? Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, and I think you know, we ha we had to sort of show that we had to you know, create a platform for him to display those skills, but we couldn't get carried away with it because I think people would get, get tired with it. But anyway, that's, that was something that was, that was quite interesting to mm. try and figure out. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, when, when you were introduced to Jason, were, did you already have your, your career path in mind or did that come later? Uh, that came later. I was sort of involved in the film industry. I was I ran a film festival for a few years, and I was in, kind of involved in more exhibition rather than production. And then, because you know, film production is something that can be quite tricky to get into. Uh, and and so I just thought, well, if I'm going to get into it, no one's going to, you know, no one ever knocks at your door and you answer the door and they go hey so we're looking for someone to make this film do you want to make it like it never you know, uh -huh. that is never going to happen uh -huh. you have to you have to sort of build up to 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 being someone where you know people are just going to give you money to do this they're going to entrust you with with this money and their reputation as a company to do something so i think you just have to go out and do it and that's what um you know, that's what I did. I wasn't going to wait around for someone to give me the money to do it. I, I had to just do it. And then from there, because it was a success, it was easier then to get my next film up and running. And then, you know, it's just sort of a snowball effect. And then the more work you do, you, you build up, you know, um, a body of work that, um, that, you know, just, just helps you get more work. And then it just goes from there. So that was... Um, it was great. I mean, I thought I, I, I never thought that, oh, I'll make this and then I'll make more. It was just my, my whole focus was on making this the best film. And I think there was even a point where I was like, if I never make another one, I'll, I, I won't mind because I'm just so happy I was able to make this. Um, but then, you know, of course, new stories come up and you get fascinated by those stories and, and off you go. Well, you gave us a perfect segue. <laughs> yeah, I was saying, I was thinking that. Like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that setup. <laughs> sure. So we um, we originally reached out to you in September, and you got right back to us, and you said, "I'd love to chat, but way busy wrapping up a project. Get yeah. back to me at." you know, at the start of the new year and we'll figure it out. And we're like, okay. So we're twiddling our fingers waiting. And then December 2020 hits and then the ripper drops. Well, actually it's funny because, um, I was, that's not what I was working on, but what, what I oh. was working on <laughs> is what I'm currently doing. Cause, um, yeah, the ripper actually finished in May of last year. It just takes a while for this stuff to come out. Like, especially with Netflix or Amazon, they need like a three month lead time because they have to translate it into like, you know, 190 languages or something and they need to send it out to, so, uh, and all, you know, and also they just pick a, a good time to, to drop something, you know, to release something because they look at their schedule and they go, when's the best time to do something? And usually, and I've, I did something for Netflix uh, about five years ago and they also dropped it just around Christmas because apparently that is a great time. 
because that's when everyone's sitting at home, uh, you know, watching and binging loads of stuff. Whereas now, that's what people are doing anyway because of COVID. But right, uh, no, no. So um, that, that's that's interesting. But no, I was actually work my I'm working on another series that finishes this August. It's about uh, it, it, it took it took about 14 months to to make. Uh, the Ripper. I was on that for 14 months. Um, and this stuff takes a long time. And it's interesting because when the subject of the Ripper, well, not the sub one of the subjects, the the, the killer, uh, Peter Sutcliffe, actually died of COVID in November. And then, um, you know, we were all set to release a few weeks later anyway. I mean, that was already what we were going to do. Um, and then it's just funny how people online going, Oh my gosh, you know, Netflix just whipped up this thing. Cause he died. And it's like, guys, you have no idea how long it takes <laughs> to make something. No. So actually what I can't talk in specifics, what I'm making at the moment, but it was, I was just doing a lot of, um, we were basically shooting for four weeks, but it was doing all remote interviews. So I was here in London, um, doing all the interviews via zoom but with local crews all over the states and it was just like it was just it was just a really difficult shoot especially because most of the interviews were in la and so i'm up to like three in the morning doing interviews every night and it was just exhausting um and just so ju just the logistics and the planning and the, and the organization that went into that that went into filming something during covid was just a nightmare and uh i just had zero a zero free time um but yeah so that, that that's basically that's basically why i couldn't do it uh, but okay. um yeah um is is this new project you can tell me if you can't say anything but is it another true crime series yeah it's in that vein although it's not like serial killer or anything like that it it it, it features true crime but it features a lot um it's it's quite it's quite a different it's quite different and really sort of quite crazy and wild and uh anyone i tell it to like composers that i'm looking for editors or anything they they just can't believe it oh, good. <laughs> uh, how wild it is but yeah so that um but i'm not supposed to say anything about it um until the company i'm working for decides to do their own press release but um that'll be out i think september october of this year something like that we're looking forward to it cool okay so back to the ripper which is obviously something that you can talk about <laughs> yeah um for those who are listening that don't know um it is a story that covers the yorkshire ripper who was a serial killer that kind of tormented women throughout the late 70s in northern england yeah so you directed the series alongside Elena Wood, right? Yeah, another director by the name of Elena Wood, yeah. Elena. How did you connect with her, and how did the idea of documenting the story about the Yorkshire Ripper come about? Well, um, so it was a, a, a production company by the name of Raw, uh, who are based in London. I, I've worked with them before. I made um, a film, my second doc the prince pennsylvania for espn with them back in 2015 and i had done some other work with them some development producing and things and we've been trying to find another project to work on together um and we weren't always able to because of scheduling or whatever and 
And this project came along, they called me in, we had a chat about it, and I was like, I'm down, this is this is great, this is really cool. But it was going to be um, a four-part four part series, but they needed two directors, and it was sort of a first doing something like that for both Elena and I. And uh, so that, that was interesting. You know, usually when you know, you're the captain of the ship, and now you're the captain of a ship, but with another captain, and it was kind of interesting to navigate those waters together uh and yeah so it was something where they approached me about it and and that's kind of what's nice about my line of work is is that i can if i have a story that i i'm developing that i want to produce i can you know reach out to companies and pitch them ideas and we can try and get them made or not but then also in between those um they reach they reach out to me about stories that they've got commissioned and then um and then i can work on them with them if i like the story um so yeah so that, that's basically how that that worked out it was a it was um a story that had already been uh developed and commissioned and they came to me to to be one of the directors on it that's amazing yeah yeah really cool i mean people get in touch with you uh and offer you cool stories yeah i mean it's, yeah. it's awesome so it certainly helps because you know finding a really great story is really difficult um i've been holding on to jason's story for so long i had no idea i mean i knew it was an incredible story but i really had no idea just how rare stories like that are until uh, and i remember doing q a's all over the world after screenings and the first question they'd always ask me is how did you find the story and i was like why did they keep asking me that <laughs> and it wasn't until i went to make another film i was like oh now i see because it's impossible to find a great story that hasn't already been told that isn't being told um that he doesn't want to be told you know what i mean it's it's really hard really hard and especially in the last sets seven to eight years or even 10 years actually going beyond when documentary has just exploded i mean it was it was always you know there and available but i think when people heard documentaries usually they thought history channel or 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 nazis or do you know what i mean or or nature they didn't it really wasn't until about 10 years ago when it's just become this massive thing and especially with netflix and uh series like making a murderer and stuff and where, where it's really become something that the masses enjoy because i really do think before it wasn't it was sort of a specialized thing um and it was sort of seen as like a kind of like all you know this it was like the artistic side of, of filmmaking or something uh it wasn't meant to be you know watched for enjoyment or entertainment right um as it is now um which you know I, I think is really interesting so anyway it's there's a lot of competition now uh, and especially because you know and from my own experience they cost a lot less to make than you know a scripted a scripted film and um so i think everyone's just trying to make them now and, and so finding a fresh original story is just so difficult as soon as you hear about it like if you read about it on facebook in some news article or it's it's like six months into production already i mean i'm telling you it's it's impossible to find a good story 
Well, and it's interesting that you touch on that because you kind of sounded like you're you're like in the news broadcasting, like got to get the best, latest and greatest documentary out there and who can do it first and who can find the best story. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 true. I mean, suppose, you know, in a way, documentary is is journalism, I guess, in a way, some some documentaries are, are more journalistic than others yeah but it's true i mean they're true stories and um and you it, it's you're telling them in a specific way some people have specific angles there's there's some have specific agendas uh and there was a time again about 10 years ago there was a big swathe of of sort of uh, social issue documentaries that was like the thing at the time, it was social issue documentaries and um, climate change documentaries and things like that, which are amazing. Uh, so you go through these trends, and then lately, the last five years has been true crime, and that's just that's been the thing. Um, but I think you know, just as ultimately, we're storytellers, and I think you just want to find a great story to tell uh, that is that that is going to um be seen by people do you know what i mean it's, it's i think that's that's the idea is, is you want to sink your teeth into a really great story you don't just want to tell a boring a boring one you want to get your hands on something that's really exciting and that excites you and something that's going to be worth working six seven days a week on for 12 12 14 16 months you know what i mean yeah absolutely so peter sutcliffe was brought in for questioning several times during the investigation. Um, do you think the way the police handled that led to more women being murdered? Yeah, I mean, and and that was that was our you know our whole perspective on that on that series was um, to to just look at the way that a a country responded to a crisis. It wasn't really to to look at the murders and or or peter Sutcliffe and examine his psychology and to get into the mind of a killer it wasn't really about that it was to look at how um a country responded to to this spate of murders that went on for five long years and um and, and just sort of like looking use basically using uh using the crisis to examine the state of a country, you know, to where the culture was at, where society was at at a time, and just to examine it and and to you know see the end result, and um, for sure, I mean, I think there was a lot of factors. I think you know, and we do mention it. Uh, obviously, the lack of technology was was a, a you know a, a massive uh, drawback for them. They didn't have you know nowadays you can. You can type, you know, command F and, and put in a name and it would link to all, everything else. Then it was all done on index cards. And so um, that wasn't going to help them. And I think they relied on their instincts a lot and their old ways of doing things. And But the thing is, the, those ways were, were skewed from years of prejudice and bias. And, and it was just looking at some... Um, how they turn their backs on, on a lot of evidence because it didn't fit their view or their idea of who this killer was or who you know who he could be and yeah absolutely i think um they had blinders on basically 
and uh, couldn't see the wood for the trees. And yeah, unfortunately, more women were killed than than should have been. And I think it, it, it's it's even worse when a police officer says, "I you know I interview this guy. There's something really fishy about him. He looks a lot like the photo fit." He, he, there's all these other um, bits of evidence where he, he fits, but because he didn't have a specific accent that came in on the tape, he he was um, you know he was told to basically get the hell out. And, yeah. And don't don't talk to me about photo fits and stuff. And that is the most egregious one, I think, because they literally they could have stopped him, and three more women were then killed directly after that. And I think. That's that's the one that's impossible to to ignore and to deny, uh, and that was really really sad. And of course, it weighed on the conscience the conscience of um, Andy Latu, the the um, you know the officer that actually interviewed one of the many officers that interviewed Sutcliffe, but but one of the few that actually said something and said, uh, you know, I think we should look at this guy more closely, and and he was turned away basically. Yeah. Um, so you do a really good job, um, with your true crime, kind of, um, giving a lot of respect to the victims and sympathizing with the victim's story. When you're creating these, do you, you must have to, at certain points, kind of put your mindset in line with the killer. Is that, is that true or how does that all work? I mean, I think it's just, uh, you know, with, with any film you make, with any story you tell, I think the best piece of advice I ever got w was, what's it about? You know, well, what's it about? Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that's important. When you make anything, it's like, what? It's just, you know, and it's just simplifying it to one line, like, what, or a very short synopsis about what is it about? Like, what are you trying to say? Whose perspective is it? Whose story are you telling? And I think once you work all that out, then it's just sticking with it because if you don't, it could end up being a gigantic mess. And um, and I think it's just about, especially with true crime, and the reason, you know, a lot of directors now have been doing true crime is it's just what is uh, kind of... It's just kind of in vogue at the moment, and I think it's, it's where a lot of work is coming from, and I think it's where a, a lot of platforms like netflix and uh amazon discovery it's it's sort of the the thing that i think a lot of people are really fascinated with at the moment but i think um there's a fine line between you know making or telling a story and then just with a purpose and with a point of view and with a point quite frankly and and just creating entertainment and i think and that's with, all, with any story, with any documentary. But then when you start getting into murders and people actually losing their lives, and if it's just entertainment, then I think that's a really... Um, I think that's when it becomes really problematic, true crime, because it you have to have respect for the victims. You can't you can't lose sight of what what you're you know what story you're telling, and um, they're you know they're not just pawns in this in in this kind of game or whatever to tell this story it's um so i mean i don't, I don't know if i put myself in the mind of of 
the killer or anything. I think you certainly want to try and understand your characters, you mm-hmm. know, and I think, um, but again, it, it just comes down to what story you're telling. And I think because you're trying to tell the best story possible, that's what you focus on. You're like, how do I tell the story in the best way possible, most interesting way, and in a way that's going to get the, um, the kind of the point across, you know, in, in a way that's going to make it clear to the audience what you're trying to say. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I don't think I really kind of try and get into the mind, but um, but certainly, you know, just try to understand what's what's happening within the story for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the last we looked, Ripper was sitting at number four on Netflix, and um, we're you kind of surprised about how well received it was i was um yeah it did really well um <clears throat> here in the uk mm-hmm. because obviously it's a it's a uk story um it was number one I think over here for mm. over two weeks i was really really blown away by that and then i heard it did really well in the states and you know in other countries australia and things um yeah i mean i think um there's just so much on Netflix now that, um, I mean, stuff comes out and I don't even know about it until like six months later. I'm like, what? That's on, yeah. oh, I got to check that out. Do you know what I mean? It's just, so I was worried that it was going to become um, just one of those where it was just in a massive pile people were trying to get through. Mm-hmm. But I think they really promoted it and um, and were really behind us and stuff. And so... Yeah, I was I was surprised and I was really happy because at the end of the day, you know, you work on something for for fourteen months and as hard as we did on it, you want people to see it. Um, you know, it's when you bust your ass working on something and then no one sees it. I mean, that's just like, what the, what was the whole point? Why did I even do that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it, it's it's I was super surprised and. Um, and yeah, you know, it's 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 really satisfying to see something, uh, to know that people are actually seeing your work for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, you're very skilled at what you do, so it's not a surprise. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. I know. Um, just one more thought on this on this topic. I absolutely love true crime. I have for years and years books and documentaries and just following stories and um i really appreciate your take on your storylines because a lot of people do focus on the killer who the killer was why he did it where did he come from what was his background and you know in the ripper we don't really even put a face to the killer until the end and it really was about how he terrorized the community and, um, you know, you brought the viewer back into the 70s with all of the old footage and just, you know, at the end where everyone is protesting. And um, I think you guys did a really good job of highlighting who these victims were, right? They were people, they had families, they had children. Um, so it was just a fresh take for me on somebody who watches true crime like on a regular basis. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate that, and I, I think um, you know, and, and I, I think it's just important not to um, 
you know, I think it's important to remember that the, the you know the the victims in these stories were real people and with people who loved them and and who were you know taken so viciously and I think it's just you just want to pay them respect. I mean, I don't you know I'm not saying you have to make every time you talk about true crime or murder or something you have to make it about them. I think you just can't. You you have to treat them with respect at least. Yes. And I think there's also nothing wrong with making a doc or telling a story about a killer and and having it focus on them and trying to learn what what. I, I think there is some merit to that. I think it's just the it, it's um, how it's executed, you know. And I think it's the intent. If the intent is just to sort of um, is is just to you know be salacious about it and entertain an audience with blood and gore and you're not respect you know how can you respect victims if you're doing that and i i just think it's a i think it's just something you need to really be careful about uh because it, it is very very easy to it's super super easy to just make it this entertaining thing where um you like heroize the the killer or you romanticize uh, the killings, uh, even sexualize the killings and eroticize the killings, and I think it's just too easy to do that. And um, you have to, you you just need to make sure you treat the subjects with respect and um, and just you know have a reason for doing it. You know, is the reason that you're getting into the mind of a killer? Is it literally just to <laughs> entertain people? Or is it because you actually have something to say about it? It's because you're, you're genuinely trying to figure something out. Right. Um, but if it's just this sort of, you know, revel in the in the grisly details, then that's just sort of, that's pornographic really, isn't it? Yes. Yep. Agreed. So I want to do a time check. We've already had you for an hour, which blows my mind. Do you have time for a few more questions or do you want to wrap sure. it up? Yeah, that's cool. Okay. So we're going to kind of jump around a little bit because I know we touched on Jason Becker's film and then we kind of went to The Ripper. Um, But you obviously have some other projects out there. Um, One one series that we really love was Hear No Evil and you directed a couple episodes off of of that series, right? Yeah. So um, Sex, Lies, and Audio Tapes. Yes. Um, That episode blew our mind because we both throughout the entire episode like kept looking at each other like no she did it no he did it no she totally did it no he <laughs> right. absolutely did it yeah. um what what is your take like now that you have time you had time to reflect on like the facts of that story how would like do you have thoughts on that because that's really an incredible story so Shannon was Shannon actually Crowley, the perpetrator, yes. and it came down to the audio tapes. The audio tapes, yes, yeah. That was that was just a wild story, and I think we the way we wanted to tell it, and it wasn't like oh this twist. It was a massive twist ending, but it wasn't it it wasn't sort of manufactured in the way just so it was a twist. You know what I mean? That was the way we basically wanted to tell it from the perspective of shannon actually believing it and so um you believe that she is being terrorized by this guy the whole time because that is the lie she's trying to sell yeah and so 
she's trying to sell that lie to her family, to herself, to the police. And so we wanted to sell that lie to the audience as well. So they went on this journey with her um, and uh, on this lie. And then uh, the evidence obviously points in the other direction. And um, so it's sort of like a hard hitting, you know, shock in the end. Um, so, yeah, so that that one was really interesting. Um, and I remember we met with the, with her family and um, they really, really believed that she was innocent. And I really felt for them. They were, they were really, you know, good people. Uh, and, you know, when we the limited time I spent with them, I felt like they were they were decent people. Um, but, you know, when your son or daughter commits something like that, I guess it's easier to convince yourself or to tell yourself that they didn't do it. You know, I think denial is a very powerful drug. Um, and it's a survival mechanism, I think. And I think it's easier to deal with uh, that lie than it is to um, to accept reality but but also to because once you do that you have to accept that your your child is capable of something like that and um yeah it, it's a sad story too because obviously she has kids and stuff and um i mean who, who knows why people do what they do but um you know she yeah she did it and it was pretty terrible yeah it was absolutely um i i think it the production of that kind of stood out to us because you really did take us through a journey of like, okay, like he's crazy. She's a victim all the way through. And then you go back through the story from another, from Jameer's side of things. Like, you know, she was crazy and she was kind of stalking me and she found out that I had a fiance. You know what I mean? So it just, you took us through one journey, and then it was like, oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess there's two sides to every story, isn't there? And it's just about getting to some version of the truth. Um, and, yeah, and, and I think when it comes down to it, it's just about looking at um, facts. And that was the facts of the case. And Detective Pate, that was what he, you know, he put together through his evidence. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just pretty horrible that... Um, you know, someone had to be killed. It was really bad. And, uh, but that's true crime, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we live in a world where people, people, you know, kill each other. And, um, you know, you, I think just to ignore that and not make it a part of, um, something that you talk about or something that you try and, and examine, I think it would be ignoring it. And I, th I don't think that's healthy either. But it is just about finding a healthy way to to approach those those subjects. Yeah. Can we ask you like a high level overview of your involvement with the Rain Dance Film Festival? God, you know what? That is like another <laughs> lifetime ago. <laughs> that festival is in a, a bunch of cities around the world, right? Big cities. Uh, it might be now, but uh, I don't, I, I, I honestly, I don't know. And especially now with COVID and stuff, mm. um, everything, you know, all festivals are online now or they just canceled outright. I know South by Southwest, South by Southwest, uh, the music and the film festival last year canceled. And that was, I think they're in April, April mm. or May. And that was only at the very you know beginning of, of the pandemic and the lockdown and everything. 
Um, they might be, um, but I just don't, I don't know. Again, I've been so out of that for so many years, but I mean, they, they are mainly in, in London. They started almost 30 years ago now, uh, or over the, trying to think. No, about 27 or eight years, something like that. Because mm -hmm. I did, I think I produced the 14th, 15th, and 16th festivals. Before that, I did other, I was, I had other roles and other positions within the festival. But it's a really great way to, where me working in a film festival is a really great way to meet filmmakers, um, meet lots of cool people, watch a ton of great films. And as a producer, I have to say, um, that was super cool to, because I could actually, concoct meeting my heroes and stuff i mean i remember one year les claypool had uh, a film out and i was like let's get that for the festival and let's fly him over and let's put him up and let's him like, like let's make him a feature um you know a, a feature director at, at at the festival and totally made it happen <laughs> and that That's was cool. another that was another moment in my life where i was just like really shocked when i saw him i remember seeing he was walking through the lobby of the hotel going to, to meet him making sure everything was cool and and i don't normally do that i have you know i had someone who would go and meet with people you know people out of town and make, and i was like i'm going on you know i'm going to come with you because i have to meet Les claypool and it was such a cool thing and the guy was just such a cool dude and i remember um he's a massive beatles fan uh, as am I. And then there was a screening of this, like, Cirque du Soleil back in, like, 2008. We're releasing this uh, film about um, about th this new show they were doing called, I think it was called Love. I, I didn't see it, but, uh, and it was all Beatles music. And they made a doc about it. And, and um, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> And uh, oh, let me go back. So they're making this um, this documentary about the making of the Cirque du Soleil show called Love with Beatles music. And George Martin was, I think he was involved in it somehow. Again, it's so long ago. But George Martin was there uh, at the screening. And I was like, oh my God. And you know, everybody knows the Beatles. They know George Martin was considered the fifth Beatle. He was the Beatles producer. And he was just this genius producer who worked at Abbey Road Studios. And a really incredible really cool guy and like he was in his 80s still really handsome and still quite like with it and and agile and he was a really cool guy and um i remember les claypool met him and was just well he didn't meet him yet i remember george martin walking past him and and this 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 look on les claypool's face was just like <laughs> oh my god that is george martin <laughs> And then a buddy of mine who was working at the festival was hanging out with Les Claypool uh, and was just blown away. Cause Les, and he's on the phone to his friend in South Africa saying, oh, I just met Les Claypool. And on the other side of the room, Les Claypool's on his phone calling his friend saying, I just met George Martin. <laughs> it, was, it was really funny. And then, and then Les Claypool actually wrote a song about his experience coming to the festival called What Would, what would, Sir, George, what would Sir George Martin Do? <laughs> and I thought that was so cool. He talked about losing his luggage. Um, you know, they lost, Delta Airlines lost his luggage on the way to London, and uh, it was really, really. He wrote a whole song about his experience. It was really cool. Uh, so that was an awesome moment. And as a producer, you can do things like that. You know, you can 
uh, we, we had a jury, um, you have jury, um, you know, juries at festivals who then select what films win best doc and what's, you know, best, you know, feature film and best short film and all this stuff. And I put together a jury with Iggy Pop was on it. And he actually, uh, he like called me, but I was in a screening. I thought it was my mom calling me or something like that. So I just like, <laughs> I just ended the call and then I get a, a voicemail later and it's, it's this guy going, hey, Jesse, this is Iggy giving. And I was like, whoa, Iggy Pop's calling me. <laughs> it was, and so that was a cool job for, for so many reasons. But really, it was just a way for me to manufacture meeting my heroes <laughs> was what it was. <laughs> we do that with this podcast sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so cool to meet people, and especially when they're cool. Like, I haven't met anyone who's a dick yet. That's good. And that's, and that's really good. Um, but yeah, especially when they're awesome people. And I've actually found the more talented someone is, usually the cooler they are, like the nicer they are. It's the, I think it's the people who are really insecure um, that can be dicks, you know. But mm. um, but yeah, that was a weird... I had the weirdest night of my life at Raindance. I, we had Corey Feldman over. And, um, uh, you know, from the Goonies and Lost yeah. Boys. And, and, and he was doing this retrospective and there was all these like weird people there who were like hounding him for autographs and he was signing them, but they just were relentless and they had stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of stuff for him to sign. And he was there with his wife at the time and his young son who was only like seven years old. And he starts freaking out because they're just like this mob is forming and, and I'm trying to get him like into, into a car and, and these freaks are like chasing him down the street. It was so weird. And then later on at night, I'm hanging out with Les Claypool. It was just the weirdest, weirdest night of my life. But, um, but yeah, that it was a, it was a wild time, really wild time. I'm digging up all these memories I hadn't thought of before. Well, I haven't <laughs> thought of in a while. <laughs> Sounds surreal. It was super surreal. Yeah, that was it was a really weird, weird night. So we read somewhere that Stanley Kubrick is your favorite. Or one of your favorite filmmakers? Yeah, uh, definitely. I think um, I think he's probably a lot of people's uh, mm. favorite directors. Uh, I think I just the, the thing about him is I just remember being a kid and maybe like fourteen or something, and I remember seeing Clockwork Orange and just thinking like that is the weirdest. Yeah. <laughs> that like you know it's I think and when I was that young I wasn't really analyzing it I wasn't looking at it as a as you know the narrative or fi or even filmmaking or camera angle or anything i just knew it made me feel a way i had never felt before and i thought that is really interesting and then when i got, went to film school and started studying film and started learning more about how to make a film and and started you know how to break down what's happening in in a scene and started kind of learning more about that and i realized you know, once I saw the parts and how he was putting them together, I was just like completely, completely blown away. And I think um, the guy was a genius. And mm. and uh, I think his films have this coldness, this sort of, um, this kind of out of body, like you're sort of watching his films from out of body or something like that. And they're detached and cold in a way. And I don't know, I'm just really drawn to the way his films make me feel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course his precision and everything. And, uh, yeah, I, I, the, the guy's amazing. 
Is is that your favorite of his films? Clockwork. Um, you know, it probably is. Yeah. Um, it was what it was my favorite film for a very long time. I think it probably is my favorite film of his. Um, I really love 2001. I really love Barry Lyndon a lot. Um, I mean, everyone loves The Shining. I love The Shining. Um, Full Metal Jacket. I really love Eyes Wide Shot. I mean, yeah, the guy's the guy's awesome. And I mean, people don't realize he actually directed Spartacus and hmm. um, you I didn't know, know Doctor Strange Love. I mean, Doctor Strange Love, I think, is the one that put him on the map. But hmm. And of course, 2001 is the one that made him turned him into like a living legend. But I think, um, yeah, he didn't make a lot of films. I thought that was really cool. He wasn't very prolific. He sort of took his time. He would take five years. I think it took him. I think from from 1980s when he made when The Shining was released, and then Full Metal Jacket wasn't released till 86. So he he takes his time. Mm-hmm. Although he was writing in in between that period, he he had a Napoleon film he'd been working on for years. He had. Um, that got shelved because it was a Napoleon film made that bombed uh, in the 70s. Um, he was working on uh, a World War II film. I think it was called The Aryan Papers. Uh, but then Schindler's List came out, and so he shelved that for a while. Uh, of course, he was working on artificial intelligence, AI, but he was shelving that. He was waiting for the, the technology and filmmaking to reach a point where he could make it. But of course, he passed away, so Spielberg did it. So, I mean, between 86, you know, Eyes Wide Shut came out in 99. So, he took, you know, 13 years, he didn't have any films released. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know, there's something about, you know, the fact that he was like a recluse and uh, a bit of a a hoarder when it came to you know like information and history and he was brilliant at chess and um you know and photography i think the thing that draws me the most to him though is his eye i think i think just how you look at you know because he was a photographer for time magazine before he was ever a filmmaker and his photos are incredible and he shot a lot of the stuff himself or he would at least operate some of it himself and he just had an incredible eye and, and a really different, weird way of looking at the world and and humanity and stuff. And I think that was just super cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he had this like kind of autonomy from the studios that most directors don't get to have, where he could just do whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no compromises. I mean, he actually pulled a Clockwork Orange from cinemas here in the UK. Uh, there was like a, a bunch of kids beats a homeless man to death i think and um and he pulled it and they were like yeah you know whatever stanley says you know goes mm. uh which is amazing and i think so that that film actually wasn't shown here for so many years um and i was actually here in london in 2001 i think when or 2001 or two when they showed it on tv for the first time since it was pulled and i thought that was really cool yeah well, um, I have a two-part question. Hopefully, not take up sure. a ton of your time. Uh, <laughs> That's so cool. I'll condense this. Um, what are your thoughts of on Werner Herzog, and what are your thoughts on his dismissing the storyboard technique? Oh, where he says um, storyboards are for cowards yes. or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I Great thought that accent. was hilarious. <laughs> uh, yeah, you did that, that well. Was terrible. Yeah. Um, 
Werner's awesome. Uh, he, wow. I mean, he's just like, he's his own guy. I mean, he's just incredible. Um, you know, I have a massive amount of respect for that guy. I think he can, you know, he's one of those guys who can just do whatever he wants. I think he can say whatever he says. I think it's fine. I think if he, if, um, if he doesn't need story, I mean, I can't draw. Um, so I don't really draw storyboards, but then, you know, uh, if you don't want to do that, then cool. And, and if you don't have to do that, cool. I think, um, I think it just depends on how you handle anxiety. Cause you know, when I, I, some of my films, I do film, um, you know, drama portions, uh, to, to, to illustrate certain scenes that don't exist in archive or anything like that, which is, which has been done for many years. Um, but when I get to, you know, to do that process, so, you know, I, I do create shot lists sometimes, or I just try to be prepared as possible. So when I rock up on the day, um, I'm not, I, you know, I can actually give people direction. I can actually give people instructions of what to do. And I think, um, I think, I guess it just depends on how quick you are, how smart you are, how you handle anxiety. I mean, me personally, it's just so when I rock up on the day, I'm not just a ball of nervous energy because I have a plan, you know? Yeah. But if Werner's such a badass, I mean, he, if he doesn't need a plan, cool, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So yeah, I think he can, you know, he can do, he can do whatever he wants. He's, and I love when he acts, you know, I love when he's in films. Um, because he plays, he, he plays such a great villain. I know he was in, um, what's that Tom Cruise one where he's like a tough guy. Um, Jack Reacher, he was like the villain in Jack Reacher. Oh, I yeah. He was, cool and he was a bad guy in The Mandalorian. And I think he just has the coolest voice. And um, and his docs are really good. He did this doc um, where he was in, Ant in uh, Antarctica. And it's just so funny. Like, he's, he's just hilarious. And he injects humor in ways that you don't expect. And yeah. You know, he yeah, he's a he's a cool guy. I, I personally I like I prefer his docs to his his scripted features. Yeah. yeah. Uh, personally. Um but you know. Have you speaking of his acting, have you have you seen Julian Donkey Boy? Yeah, oh my god, he's awesome in that. He's a <laughs> he's a maniac. <laughs> he's a maniac, yeah. He's he's great in that. God, I forgot about that movie. That movie's really great. That's yeah. probably my favorite Harmony Korean film for sure. Oh nice. So you've seen Gummo yeah. too? Yeah, Gummo, yeah, I've seen Gummo, Julian Donkey Boy, um Kids, I, obviously well he wrote Kids, didn't he, but he didn't yeah. direct it. Um and what was the Spring Breakers? Yeah. Um, was like a recent. Yeah, but Julian Donkey Boy was incredible. Yeah. But yeah, I forgot Werner was in that. He's like in his underwear the whole time, isn't he? He's tidy yeah. whitey. He, I think he's drinking cough syrup out of a slipper in one one scene. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They probably yeah, yeah they probably told him making a documentary of of his life. No, he's super cool. Have you ever seen when he was um, he was giving an interview? I think it was in LA somewhere, and and he got shot in the neck. No, wow. Yeah, someone shot like someone shot him in the neck with like a like a BB gun or a pellet gun or something like that, and he just carried on with the interview. Wow. He's like, it's just a flesh wound, and he, <laughs> and he carried on. Was, yeah, he's a bad dude. That's great. That is awesome. <laughs> Um, so I'm kind of 
interested to know if you are familiar with the West Memphis Three story. I am, yeah. Um, I remember I was a massive, well, I am a massive fan of the um, of the uh, Paradise Lost films. So when they came out in, uh, directed by Joe Berlinger, who did um, Some Kind of Monster, uh, I loved those films. They came out on, on they were HBO there was two of them and HBO came out like the mid 90s and I, I remember I loved them because I was a massive Metallica fan at the time and they used like all Metallica music yeah. it was mainly like Welcome Home Sanitarium like mainly like puppets stuff from puppets and yeah. they had like Welcome Home Sanitarium and I just thought it was like the use of that music was really awesome and but also the way it was shot and the story about these you know three guys who these three kids who loved metal music but they lived in it was tennessee wasn't it they lived in like you know some backwater town and and freaked people out they thought they were witches or whatever or yeah. devil yeah. worshippers and yeah i love i love those films and then the, the third one came out what like five years ago and there was also a feature doc um made about it as well but yeah that's that's an amazing story yeah i think that's actually kind of what turned me on to the world of true crime and that series was interesting because it kind of pokes holes in our justice system and it really kind of makes you think about things yeah um it really it really does uh and um i mean it turned into a witch hunt and i also think you know it's interesting because you watch the first one um paradise lost um you know, you can you can see the kids are kind of arrogant and and they're sort of playing up to the cowards and stuff. But and you're thinking, oh well, they did it because that's how you know that's how monsters behave. You know, it's like how Richard Ramirez behaved when he was caught. He had his sunglasses on. He thought he was a rock star and stuff. Yeah. Um, but but they were like teenagers and they were like you know arrogant arrogant douchey teenagers as you know we all are when we're kids. You know, we're like arrogant little bastards and, and that's how they're behaving and i think what was interesting about the second film is you saw just how much prison matured them you saw just how much they grew up and they grew up fast and they realized what they were involved you know what they're involved in the gravity of the situation they're involved in that they're gonna go away forever that and i thought that was really interesting um of just seeing them grow up and realize what what um you know the what they were involved in and how serious it really was yeah um, yeah i think they were just enjoying the attention they you know they hadn't had any attention um and uh when they went down it was like oh this is real actually um but yeah i i you know some people still think they did it um i don't think they did but um i think the evidence was pretty pretty yeah. clear i think there's there's there, there's sort of theories about who really did it and i thought the um what was the feature doc call that came out about well there was obviously joe berlinger's third film but there was another one was it just west, west memphis yeah west of memphis i think oh yeah yep i think you're right yeah i think it was west of memphis um and I think it was that exact by um, uh, Peter. 
What's his name from who directed um, Lord of the Rings? Oh, Jackson. Peter Jackson, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Sorry, it's Sunday. It's, you know, <laughs> end of the week. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that was exec by him, and I thought that was really well done, too. In a way, I was a bit annoyed, though, because I was like, hey, you know, this is this story's already being told. It's been told since the 90s, and yeah. so I sort of watched that film reluctantly, because I know Joe Berlinger had the third, his third film out, which is about, you know, um, them being released and all this new evidence and stuff. And But I watched it, and I thought that, that was also really well done. Um, so I think it's just a... It's just a really, uh, you know, incredible case for sure. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Um, we ha- If you don't mind, we have a just opinion, this or that choice group of sure. sh- short questions yeah, okay. for you. Um, there's, sure. there's no right or wrong or explanation required. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So first is Full Metal Jacket or Platoon? Oh, full metal jacket. All right. Uh, Karate Kid or Bloodsport? Karate Kid. Uh, Yes, I agree. Uh, Clockwork Orange or Slaughterhouse-Five? Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Um, The Wolf of Wall Street or American Psycho? American Psycho. Yes. I didn't didn't really love The Wolf of Wall Street, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah. I agree with all your answers. Not that there was a right or wrong to yeah, any you, of them. Yeah, you started off by saying there's no right or wrong answer. Then you're like, yes. Well, he picked yes. all the ones I would have. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, so let's wrap this up. And we've taken up a ton of your time and we totally appreciate it. Yeah. So um, what's what's next for Jesse? Um, so I'm working on a another four-part series um, that is due to be released um, later this year. I can't say too much about it, but it's uh, also in the vein of true crime. But it's a, it's it is very different. It's not serial killers or anything like that. It's um, it, it also expo- explores sort of um, you know cultural elements of the time as well. And it's it's a really wild story. It's it's actually really fun. Not uh, it's a fun story that happens to have. Um, a little sprinkling of murder in it. Oh, interesting. But yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> I'll, I'll, yeah, and I'll, I'll let you know when it comes out. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Um, so we want to thank you immensely for your time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, guys. Wait, and one I'll... more, one more thing. Okay. One more thing. One sure. More, just one more quick thing. <laughs> Not to be sure. weird, but obviously we've done our research on you, right? So IMDB yeah. and Googling your name and figuring yeah. out who you are. So we both have a milestone birthday coming up next oh, yeah. month. The same milestone birthday. So happy birthday to you. Yeah. Oh, happy birthday to you too. Thank I know, you. Big one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 30. You said 30, right? 30? <laughs> 30, yeah. Oh, no, I said 20. I said 20. I don't know if I want to yeah. be 20 again. Yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to be 20 again. I, I'd be 30 again, though. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'd be 30 again if only I could be where I am now at 30. Then I'd, then I'd be cool with that. But I wouldn't, have to, I wouldn't want to have to do my 30s all over again and, you know, go back to the beginning of a career sort of thing. But, um... Yeah, but you know what? I think 40 is like the new 30, isn't it? It's like, I think when you, when you look at like generations of people and you look at, you know, people long ago, I mean, you're like, and then you actually look in the films and stuff and you're like, God, they're really old. And you look them up, they're like 46. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, and so I think it's just, you know, people look a lot younger and I think they're a lot healthier these days. And 
So I think 40 was always a little scary to me. But um, it's not so much anymore. Yeah, I agree. I'm all, I'm I'm good with 40. I'm okay with yeah, it. Yeah, I'm good. I won't be good with 50, but oh. Oh. <laughs> I'll be good. I'm good with 40 for now. <laughs> I got a year and a half until 50 hits. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. You don't sound 50. I know that sounds like weird to say. No. I, I no think it doesn't I, sound. I you sound, actually sound really young. Yeah. yeah like like 15. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, like I thought, oh, okay, like early 30 or something like hmm. that. Okay. You both sound really young. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. Okay. Thank you, Jesse, so much for your time. Uh, we so appreciate it. We enjoyed sure. it. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you it was much. fun. I, re- I enjoy talking about all this kind of stuff. It's really cool. It was great, and we can't wait to see what you come up with next. I know it's going to be great, like all your other stuff. Cool. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank all right, you. Jesse. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thanks, guys. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye bye. Bye. All right. See you. Bye. What a cool guy. Very. Very talented. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had so many questions for him, mm-hmm. and we obviously couldn't get to all of them and still remain respectful of his time. So, yeah. who knows? Maybe yeah. there'll be a part two. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. <laughs> and something he said, I know he wasn't talking about himself, but uh, I think we've noticed a lot of times the more skilled or talented the people that we talk to are, like the the more pleasant they are, the more down to earth they are, the more cool they are. You yeah, know what I mean? absolutely. And he's definitely one of them. Yes. And I know he wasn't, he was kind of putting it in perspective to himself meeting people, but yeah. I was, when he was saying that, I was thinking, you're one of those people for yeah, us. Totally. Yeah. Um, so we'll link to his IMDB because mm. obviously we didn't get to talk about all of his projects, but yeah. there are some really cool ones out there yeah. that everyone should check out. Yeah, there's a lot there. I am a little bummed that I didn't get to ask him about Gypsy's Revenge. Yeah. Because that is such a mind-blowing story. It is. And he covered it back in 2018. Mm-hmm. He did a documentary on it, and I just kind of wanted to ask ask his take on it. But yeah. who knows? Yeah. Future opportunities. Yeah. Okay. We are ending with a song? We are. We're going to end with... A song by Carl Roa. This is Carl Roa of Roa's Ark that we played a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. We're going to hear Lord of the Strings. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy. Don't be an asshole. And to quote Werner Herzog, look into the eyes of a chicken and you will see real stupidity. Don't be a chicken.